If you don't mind, let's be turning together, please, to Genesis chapter 26. We are continuing to teach verse by verse through the book of Genesis, is our custom here. We find ourselves a little bit more now than halfway through this book. So we find ourselves in Genesis chapter 26, which places us squarely in the middle of Isaac's story. Isaac, of course, is the promised son of Abraham, and therefore the story of Abraham and what God is going to do through Abraham to not only bless the Jewish people that will arise from Abraham's seed, but through Abraham, God will bless the whole world. It does us well to pay careful attention to the details of this text. I'll put a little title in front of you on the screen. Before I do that, though, I want to mention to you that next week, which uh, next Sunday is Palm Sunday, when we will focus particularly on the crucifixion of our Savior, we are going to gear that service around a special attention to prayer. We'll have several times during our morning service that direct our attention to prayer, particularly themes of redemption because of the time of year in which we find ourselves. And then we're going to have a potluck after the service where we can spend some time fellowshipping together, and we'll have some further corporate prayer during that time. And then throughout the week, we will send daily prayer prompts, for lack of a better term, through email to you to direct your attention towards specific deliberate prayer. So that will be the way that we're going to approach this uh, coming week, not this one, but the one after. So I wanted to make you aware of that. We'll send you some more details about next Sunday, but plan ahead if you can to stay with us next Sunday after the service for a special time of fellowship and prayer. Genesis 26, we find ourselves here in a section that in some ways is repetitive, and by that I mean we're going to see some similar themes here in this particular chapter that we have seen elsewhere. I have entitled this today, Finite Fear and Infinite Faithfulness. What I mean by that is we are finite. God is infinite. God made us. God is unmade. Therefore, we are finite, and He is infinite. Not only are we finite in our existence, we are finite in power. We are finite in strength. There's there's limitations to these people made of clay, you and me. God, on the other hand, is infinite. God has no limitations, not only in His eternal existence, but in His power. So, though we are made in His image, we are not Him. There is one God. Finite people inevitably will fear from time to time. That is because as we live in a world that we cannot control, we find ourselves butting up against things that we we can't manipulate. Finite people are going to fear because we can't keep hold of everything around us. We can't can't juggle all the balls that are in the air for us. And so inevitably, as we run up against things that we can't control, that are bigger than us, that are beyond our capabilities, we will fear. Now, fear manifests itself in, in all kinds of ways. That is to say, sometimes we, we are very aware that we are fearful. At other times, our fear manifests itself in, in subtle ways that we, we can't seem to quite put our fingers on. We'll see that in a few moments. God, on the other hand, knowing our finite tendency to be fearful, 
and His infinite faithfulness towards us puts us in situations to expose that fearfulness, which ultimately, perhaps, at the very root of all that is a sign that we are prideful. How do pride and fear go together? Well, when we trust God as we should, and we give Him the proper place in our life to control all things as we know that He alone can do, that leads us to confidence. But if we somehow have the notion that it is up to us to make life work, then we will inevitably, out of pride, find ways to make life work. But we learn over time that we can't really do that. So therefore, unchecked pride leads to irrational fear. Now, I'm not saying to you, and I want you to be careful how you hear this, that any fear is necessarily sinful. I'm not saying that at all. But I'm saying that often as God's people, as those who are called to worship Him, as those who are His children and called to live in covenant faithfulness to Him, if we're not careful, fear can take over. Fear can become much more the norm rather than some random passing thing that we face from time to time. And often that is an indication that there is something more subtle going on underneath the surface. But God in His infinite faithfulness exposes those fears and calls us instead to trust in His infinite faithfulness. So therefore, I think we can say really without reservation that faith in the infinite, in God, is the only real antidote for paralyzing fear. And whether you're the kind of person that fears from time to time or whether perhaps, alternatively, you're the kind of person who fears a lot, maybe more like all the time. Faith in the infinite one, in God alone, is the only antidote to your fear. Fear is part of the human condition, and though it is not always sinful to fear, it often is sinful to fear. But God in His great love toward us replaces that fear over time with confidence in His faithfulness. In many ways, life is like one big crucible. You know, a crucible is uh, this mechanism that, that exposes impurities in a substance and rips those away and, and leaves the pure substance behind. That's what life is like. Life is like a big crucible, ripping away, stripping away all the things that that are not good for us and replacing them with things that are good. By the end of these lives, whether they're 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 years long, we don't know at this point, but, but at the end of these lives as God's people, we will be a lot different than we are today, just like we're a lot different today than we were a decade ago. God and His faithfulness never leaves us where we are. God is always at work. Sometimes His work feels a little bit harsh because what God is doing is He's stripping away layers of sinfulness which, which we have clung to, which have been like cloaks of comfort to us for a long time, but God in His wisdom knows those things are not good for us, and so He changes us. This text is a clear indication that fear is one of those things. As Moses wrote these things down a long time after they happened, he was saying to a fearful people, you are finite. 
and you, you cannot control your existence. But there is one who is infinite, and you can trust Him. And historically, He has always taken care of His people. Therefore, He is trustworthy. You can keep your finger in Genesis chapter 26 for just a moment and turn with me to Exodus 14. I want to show you a couple of places where Moses speaks to a fearful people and proclaims the faithfulness of the Lord to them. This will give you some indication as to why Genesis was, was written, and it will also help connect your experience to what Israel needed to hear through the inspiration of the Spirit in Moses' pen. In Exodus chapter 14, beginning in verse 10, we find Israel backed up against the Red Sea. They have come out of Egypt, and their coming out of Egypt was miraculous. God had forced Pharaoh's hand. He had done all kinds of miraculous things to prove to Pharaoh that he was the one true God and that Pharaoh could not stand against him. And God wanted His people, the Jewish people that came out of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, He wanted them to come out of Egypt where He had incubated them for a time and grown them into a nation, and He was going to take them back to the land that He had promised Abraham. So Israel has been released, but now they find themselves backed up against the Red Sea. Pharaoh comes to his senses, realizes he has lost his slave labor force, arouses his army, and goes after them. And now in Exodus chapter 14, verse 10, Pharaoh draws near. And the people of Israel lift up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marking at, marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians." For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which He will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Moses looks at these people. The ones who had seen rivers turned into blood, the ones who had seen the sun in its full brightness of noonday turned to darkness. These people had seen the power of the Lord. They had seen the firstborn of all the Egyptians wiped out, and yet their firstborn had been preserved. They had seen the hand of the Lord. But now they find themselves backed up against this body of water, the opposing force of the Egyptians coming after them and they are afraid. And you and I would have been afraid. But Moses by this point understood the power of the Lord, and he looks at his people, and he says, fear not, for the Lord will fight for you. In Genesis chapter, I'm sorry, Exodus chapter 16, we find something similar. In verse 1 of Exodus 16, Moses records, they set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. So they fear when they're 
lives are backed up against the water and they're being pursued by the enemy. But then God wipes that enemy out. But then they travel on a little farther, only a month and a half out of Egypt, and now they're hungry. And they're afraid that the God who can control all things, who can allow them to pass through waters by parting them and then destroy their enemies, they're afraid that He can't feed them. And they grumble again. This is not the last time Israel would grumble. They become a grumbling people. That characterizes them. Later on in Numbers chapter 13 and 14, as they're approaching the land of Canaan, Moses chooses a spy from each of the 12 tribes and sends them into the southern portion of Canaan to spy out the land. Ten of the spies come back and say, we can't defeat these Canaanites. They're too strong for us. Two alone, Joshua and Caleb, say, no, we can trust God the God who crushed the Egyptian army in the Red Sea, the God who gave us bread from heaven and water from rocks. We can trust Him. But the people of Israel are swayed by the report of the ten, and then God punishes the people of Israel. And that entire generation has to wander in the wilderness for 40 years until another generation arises that God will take in to conquer the promised land. But throughout the rest of the Old Testament, We find lots of periods of of bleak darkness where Israel turns from God and does not trust Him and trusts themselves. When Jesus comes and preaches here on this earth to His people, He spoke in the Sermon on the Mount to a people who were filled with anxiety. And He tells them, don't worry about what you wear. Don't worry about what you eat. If God can clothe the flowers of the field in splendor that far surpasses anything that Solomon in all of his glory was arrayed in, if God can feed the birds of the air to the point that they never worry about their meal, why would you worry? You can't add one day to your lifespan by worrying. You can trust God. Jesus knew the condition of the hearts of His audience. And He knows the condition of our hearts as well. We have a tendency toward fearfulness, and yet we have an infinitely faithful God who takes care of us. With all that context in mind, let's read together Genesis chapter 26. Now there was a famine in the land, besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar to Abimelech, king of the Philistines, And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you, and I will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So Isaac settled in Gerar. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, She is my sister. For he feared to say, My wife, thinking lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. When he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, took out of a, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah's wife. Sort of a subtle way of speaking of some sort of romantic interlude. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she is your wife. How then could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, Because I thought, lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. 
So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, Whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him, and the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants, so that the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. So Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names that his father had given them. When Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. So he called the name of the well Essek, because they contended with him. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that also. So he called his name Sitna. And he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called his name Rehoboth, saying, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. From there he went to Beersheba. And the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. When Abimelech went to him from Gerar with Ahuzath, his advisor, and Phicol, the commander of his army, Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you? They said, We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, Let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you, that you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you and have done unto you nothing but good and have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. So he made them a feast, and they ate and drank. In the morning they rose early and exchanged oaths. And Isaac sent them on their way, and they departed from him in peace. That same day Isaac's servants came and told him about the well that they had dug and said to him, We have found water. He called it Sheba. Therefore the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. When Esau was forty years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Beri, the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basimoth, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite. And they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. Moses recorded these words because he led a faithless people. Moses wrote down in detail what happened to his forefathers so that the people that followed him, the people that followed Moses, the people that had come out of Egypt would have evidence for their faith. And now we read the same words, and these things have been written down for the sake of our faith to show us what the human condition is like and to compare this with the one true infinite God. Very simple outline today. In verses 1 through 16, we see that the Lord will providentially place us in situations to expose what we worship. If this story sounds familiar to you, it's because something very similar happened to Abraham. And in fact, twice in Abraham's life, Abraham lied about who his wife was because he was afraid that those with whom he was sojourning would take his wife away because she was good-looking, and they would kill Abraham. That Abraham put his family in great danger to save his own skin. And it is not unlikely that Isaac was pretty aware of those stories. 
And yet, whenever Isaac faces this famine, and he has to go find a place where his family can survive, he does the same thing. Practically speaking, I think this demonstrates to us that we can teach our children all that we want. We can tell them about our successes. We can tell them about our failures, but, but often our children are going to have to learn things on their own. Now, that does not mean that you shouldn't teach them. You should. You should be very honest with your children. I don't know necessarily that you should tell them every single little detail of every bad thing you've ever done. But if you hide from your children your faults and your failures, they will, they will lose faith. They will lose hope. They will think that they're the only ones who struggle. So I say to you, be honest with your children. But often what you will find as a parent is that they will have to butt their heads up against the proverbial wall. They will have to learn to fail and then succeed by God's grace on their own. And this is what happens to Isaac here. What you also see in Isaac is he had some of the same tendencies as his father Abraham. And that is because Abraham had a lot of the same tendencies as his father Adam. And because we are all offspring of Adam and Eve, we have a lot of the same tendencies. Tendencies toward fear because we pridefully believe that it is up to us to make life work. And when life doesn't go like we want, we often turn inward trying to figure out why it's like that, and then we grow anxious and fearful. And then we begin to manipulate situations and rationalize our sin in the manipulation. Isaac goes to Gerar, to the land of Abimelech, and he is afraid that because Rebekah is very pretty that the people of the land will want her, particularly probably Abimelech. And because of that, they will wipe Isaac out and take away all that he has. And so he lies. He rationalizes his sin. And he manipulates his situation so that it will work out well for him. But all at once, he is really not doing anything to make things better. He's making things much, much worse. He's exposing not only his own family, but an entire people group, these Philistines, to danger. And so he repeats the sin of his father, where he pridefully rationalizes his sin in an effort to manipulate his circumstances to make things go better. But we know the God who made all things and controls all things controls the weather. And God allowed the, the weather pattern to be such that Isaac had to go find a way to preserve his family. So he leaves the land of Canaan, and he goes to the land of Philistia, and he finds here a place where he can survive because there's ample water and vegetation there. But in doing so, God places him in a position, in a circumstance where inevitably what is inside of Isaac will come out. And that's what God very often does to you and me. He puts us in situations to expose what is still dark inside of us. He puts us in situations to expose our pride, our pride which manifests itself in all kinds of ways, not the least of which is irrational fear. What should Isaac have done here? Isaac should have recalled the God who had always taken care of his family. Isaac should have recalled that that God gave him, God gave Isaac, 
to his parents when they were very old. Isaac should have recalled that when he was placed on an altar when he was a young boy and was about to be slain by his father, when his father demonstrated his greatest act of faith in all of his life, that God instead provided a substitute, a ram, who would take his place. Isaac should have remembered all the meals that God provided. Isaac should have remembered all the water that God had given him. Isaac should have remembered that God had provided him a wife. Isaac should have remembered all the campfire stories from his father where Abraham told him about how God was faithful. Isaac should have remembered his own stories where God had taken care of him every moment of his life. But Isaac was faced with a situation that he could not control and he cowered in anxious fear. And he's a lot like us. God puts us in situations throughout our lives to expose things in us that are ugly and ungodly. He does it really throughout all of our lives. That is to say, you're not past all those circumstances. Some of you are in them today. And don't hold your breath because it might be tomorrow and it will certainly be sometime this year. That's what God does. God doesn't do that because He's harsh. God does that because, because He loves us. I think that's an important thing to remember whenever we face these circumstances. When God places us in circumstances that we just don't like, frankly, maybe that we hate, I think underneath all of that, there has to be a quick reminder that God does not hate us, but instead loves us deeply and dearly and, brothers and sisters, wisely. You see, not only does God love us with all that He's got, God loves us perfectly every moment of our lives. God was loving Isaac through this because in stripping away the things that are ungodly and exposing the darkness that is still inside of us, God is loving us. If you're a parent, you understand this. When you see something dark in your child, pride, selfishness, anger, lack of respect for authority, dishonesty, lust, and all kinds of other things. If you love your child, you do not merely deal with the awareness of said darkness. You do something about it. You talk to them about it. You expose the darkness through the Word and through conversation. When necessary, you bring correction so that they will see a better way. Jesus also spoke about this in the Sermon on the Mount when He said, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more does your Father know how to take care of you? Oh, you of little faith. I think we can say this in regard to discipline as well. If you being evil know how to lovingly discipline your child that they might be weaned from self-confidence and instead turn to worship of the one true God, if you being evil know how to do that, how much more does your Father in heaven know how to lovingly discipline and transform His children? Isaac rationalizes his lie here, his deceit, in an effort to preserve his life. Instead, he mucks it up and makes it much worse. But we know that God didn't leave it like that. God came in and He cleaned it up. He preserved Isaac. Why did He do that? 
Well, he preserved Isaac because God always keeps His promises. He keeps His promises to bring redemption. As we've seen throughout Genesis to this point, the story of Genesis is about God bringing redemption to the world. Isaac should have remembered that too. I'm a child of promise. God has promised to bless not only my family, but the entire world through me. I can't die. God will take care of me. At one point, I was lying on an altar, and my father was about to stab me with a knife. God preserved me alive there. He'll do it now, too. Isaac failed to to process those thoughts. But God always keeps His redemptive promises. And I say to you today, if God will go to every length necessary to keep His promises of redemption, you can trust Him. Because as one who has been chosen in Christ, as one who has experienced the redemption of Christ, what will He withhold from you that you need? Let's just park there for a moment. If God decided before the foundation of the world to set His affections upon you, and then ratified those promises by sending His Son to take on human flesh and live with the weakness of humanity, and to sacrifice Himself for us. If God never failed to do everything necessary to make you a son or a daughter, why do you need to fear? I think the doctrine of adoption is important to remember whenever you find yourself in a fearful spot. If you are a son, or if you are a daughter of God, rescued from rebellion and brought into the family of God, awaiting your inheritance where you will dwell with Him in perfect bliss for all of eternity. And all of that has been promised and brought to pass. What do you need to fear? I again return to the analogy of a parent with its child. If you love your children and you see them in danger, you don't look at them dismissively. You run to them. You you rescue them because you love them and you care for them. Brothers and sisters, how much more the one who himself is love, the one who has never failed at every point throughout redemptive history to bring about his promises for those whom he loves, can you not trust him? We have a tendency whenever we are fearful to try to manipulate life to make it work and to take away the fear. Some of you have real things that have harmed you. Parents that did not care for you like they should. For some of you, much the opposite. Your parents were tyrannical emotionally, physically, or even worse. Some of you have had or have spouses that were the worst kind. They weren't faithful. They weren't weren't kind to you. The people that should have protected you the most, your children as you get older or as you are now in your state, most of us, where you're taking care of kids and and you look back on your parents who they should have taken care of you or maybe you're a spouse, as I've already said, and you're not being taken care of or have not been taken care of historically. Family situations where, where you should feel safe. For a lot of you, you've known anything but. Can you trust a God 
who works through evil circumstances for your good. What I'm saying is, some of you have, have legitimate reasons to be afraid of life. You've been surrounded by people, people who should have been kind and protective of you, who've, who've done anything but. And yet there is one who is greater. It's difficult to not project the character of those around us, whether it's a parent or a spouse or a child, onto God. I think it's natural for us to do that. But you have to try not to do that. You have to fight by faith in the Holy Spirit of God to help you not to do that. You might have had a horrible father, and I know some of you did, but your heavenly Father is not like that. His Word proves that. And I think in your life, if you have eyes to see, He's proving that to you. Some of you had terrible spouses. Maybe some of you do today. But that's not what God is like. That is not what your Savior is like. It's natural for us, looking back and all the disappointments of our human experience, to project those characteristics onto God, but I tell you, He's not like that. And one of the reasons that we come to the Word week by week is to fight for faith. Brothers and sisters, it's natural for us to fear, but we need not live in fear. Abraham's story is one where he learned not to be controlled by fear. And now God takes Abraham's son and puts him in situations to expose his fear so that he'll change, so that he won't stay the same. I'll give you a couple examples of how fear manifests itself in our existence, and we'll move on to the end of our chapter here today. I find myself often in counseling situations dealing with people who are controlled by fear. And it's hard sometimes to be able to speak the truth to them, to help them to trust the infinite God who will never fail them, the one who is love, because all I've ever known is fear. All they've ever known are the kind of people who will, who will damage them and abuse them and use them. And so everyone around them, particularly figures of authority, all those failures of people in their past, it's projected onto you as a leader. One of the things that I've learned over time is that, that you can't fix people. You just can't do that. That's, that's not how God works. God instead works over time where relationships are, are, are settled. And by that I mean over time you, you learn to trust each other. Where a family grows up and you learn to sin against each other and repent and learn to trust each other. Where over time through, through an accumulated truth we learn to trust God's Word rather than our own wisdom. I think ultimately, when it really comes down to it, we can find the best help for our problems in living in our church. I mean, in our individual churches. It's one thing to go to a counselor that you pay who is sort of dismissive about your life and you see him or her an hour a week for most of your life. But it's difficult to really trust a person like that who perhaps doesn't have your best interest in mind. God has designed the church to be the kind of place where people heal, and healing takes time. Healing is best done in the context of relationships, relationships that will hurt you and relationships that will bring you the greatest joy. 
It'll take time for you to learn to trust people around you who have your best interest in mind. But God is giving us victory in those ways. Some of you who are listening to me right now know that. He's helping you to learn to trust each other as you work through difficult circumstances in life. And I say to you who are the kind of people who want to help other people, don't be surprised as you help people and they kick back in fear. Sometimes when you go to help somebody and they push back against you, they're testing you. Will you stick beside them as they are irrational? Will you stick beside them as they work through their fear and their pain? I say to you who are fearful, who are often controlled by anxiety because of the pain of the past or perhaps even present pain, be patient with those who are trying to help you because they have your best interest in mind. Soul care is a difficult thing. It's just messy. It's not easy. It's not proof texty. What I mean is, you can't just take a few random verses that you learn in a training class somewhere, apply them to somebody's heart, and expect that they're immediately going to believe those verses and they're never going to fear again. That is not the way counseling, that's not the way disciple-making, that's not the way healing works. It's hard, it's messy, and it's difficult. But this is why we rest in the redemptive love of Jesus. His love can cure all things, and we are to be conduits of His love toward one another, working through fear and helping one another. This will help you interpret your world as well. This is important, I think. For those of you who work in the secular marketplace, why do you often see deceit? Why do your coworkers often lie? Even to the point maybe that it gets you in trouble. Why? Because they're afraid. They're afraid if their failures or their weakness or their inadequacies are exposed, they'll get sacked which is a very British way of saying they'll get fired. And therefore, you're caught up in their problems. But why do they do that? They do it because they're afraid. How do you respond to this? Well, I think you've got to tell the truth. In other words, if you get in trouble because of somebody else's deceit because they're afraid, it doesn't mean that you never go try to defend yourself. It's not inappropriate to defend yourself. But you also have eyes to see, you must have eyes to see why people do what they do. So, by way of practical application, as you see your brother or sister at work, and and I use that term loosely, they may not be Christians. In fact, often they won't be. And they're doing something deceitful to, to cover themselves up. That might give you an opportunity, though you don't really think so, to have the best evangelistic opportunity you've ever thought of. As you see your coworker being deceitful and covering up their fearfulness, that might be the best time to go to them, to say to them, I understand why you're doing this. Now, you shouldn't do this, but here's why you're doing it, and let me tell you a better way. It's one of the best marketplace opportunities for evangelism you'll ever have. And you might get caught up in it to the point that you get damaged by their deceit. But out of boldness and concern for your fellow image bearers, it might give you an opportunity to actually help them. So whether you're a Christian or whether you're not, you will often try to to find ways to make life work, but we have to have eyes to see why we do the things we do, not only in growing ourselves in greater Christ-likeness, but sometimes actually helping people in the darkness who don't understand why they do what they do, but instead going to them and helping them when we can. 
So there's some great psychology in this text, helping you to understand yourself and helping you to understand the people around you. And God will always be putting us in situations to expose what we worship, but He will replace it with worship of Himself, which is really what the rest of the chapter is about. Not only does God put us in situations to expose what we worship, which is bad for us, the Lord faithfully draws us to Himself by always keeping His promises. Isn't that what you see God doing throughout the rest of the chapter? In fact, God blessed Isaac in the midst of his sin and failure. Grace is confounding. Grace is upside down. Here's what I mean. Every other major religion that you can conceive of, Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, the most major portion of of Christendom, Roman Catholicism, every single one of those major religions and all the rest are all marked by one basic underpinning, one basic ethic, and that is that God is a God of retribution. If you do poorly, you'll be treated poorly. If you do well, God will treat you well. That is not biblical, gospel-centered Christianity. The gospel has nothing to do with retribution, at least not for you. The gospel does have an element of retribution in it, but Jesus took all of that. That's what we call propitiation. God poured out His wrath on His Son. The gospel does talk about retribution, but not for you, brothers and sisters. Jesus took the retribution of God's wrath, and He pours out His grace on you. Grace is confounding. Grace is upside down. Every other major religion is about retribution. If you live well, you'll get something good. If you live poorly, you'll get punishment. Isaac's story is one of grace. What did he deserve? He deserved retribution. What did he get? He got grace. We have to have eyes to see what Moses is doing here in Genesis. Again and again and again, Genesis shouts to us that God is a God of confounding upside-down grace. Even when we fail, As you look inside today, and I mean inside your heart, inevitably there's going to be something dark in there. Even if you're growing and doing well, there's still some dark stuff in there. Maybe it's your pride. Maybe it's your ego. Maybe it's a tendency toward dishonesty. I dare say that somebody's in front of us today who who struggles with honesty. For some of you, it's probably lust. There's probably one or two or more of you that are currently being controlled by lust and nobody knows it because you're hiding it because you're ashamed. These sins are not okay. They must be dealt with through confession and repentance where you grow and you change and by the power of God's Holy Spirit, you can. I invite you, if you are struggling with some of these darker things, to to reach out for help. Let us help you because we love you and let us apply God's upside-down gracious love to you. but I say to you that God will always forgive. That's what grace proclaims to us. 
That allows you to repent. It, it allows you to pursue change. It allows us to help you through your change. What God did for Isaac is in spite of his sin, he kept his promises. God loved Isaac because he loved Abraham, because he loved humanity, because God wants to display on the canvas of humanity his overwhelming upside-down love. Isaac is driven away from the Philistines. He goes and lives on his own, and he finds water well after water well after water well. It's the opposite of the beginning of the chapter. At the beginning of the chapter, there's drought. There's not enough water. Isaac has to go find a place to survive. Why did God do that? To expose the sin in Isaac. Isaac is then driven out after having been abundantly blessed, even after his sin, and then he finds room for himself. He, he finds ample water to provide for his family. And he survives because God keeps his promises. What do we take away from all this? Well, first of all, as you find yourself in situations that you do not like, and we have highlighted more the beginning of this chapter than the end on purpose today. As you find yourself in these situations, don't kick. You know, it's like when your children throw tantrums and you're trying to help them. When God puts you in situations to expose things you don't like, don't kick. Instead, confess, repent, and trust and see these situations as opportunity for growth. God is using the crucible of life to expose what is impure and to replace it with what is pure. Be thankful. Be grateful for God's unending faithfulness to you, even in spite of your sin. And then purpose by His grace to trust Him and to grow from these circumstances. Abraham had been faithful but it wasn't until he saw the unfaithfulness to his faithfulness grew. Isaac here is unfaithful, but because of the confounding upside-down faithfulness of God, he grew from this, and we can as well. So, when God blesses you, it's easier to say, God loves me. But what about when God tests you? What about when He's exposing things in you that are yet dark and yet impure? He loves you then too. So whether today you are going through a trial where He's exposing things in you that are not good, or whether you find yourself in a season of, of basic happiness and contentment, God loves you all the same throughout all of it. And He wants you to trust Him and He wants you to change. And again, as a community, we study these things together. We talk about these things out loud together so that no matter where you find yourself today, we can help each other by God's grace to grow, to taste and see that God is good. And as we grow in that confidence and that knowledge, we have something to say. As you have experience in life with growing and having your darkness exposed and replaced with light, as you learn to see the never-ending faithfulness of God, you have something to say. You have substance to, to, to leave for your children you have something to say to your friends who are struggling for faith. You have something to say to the world around you who has no concept of any of this, who only knows retributional theology, who has no concept of grace whatsoever. You have something to say. You're not selling them yourselves because after all, there's ultimately nothing good in you that made God choose you. 
You're selling them a, a really good God who is full of grace, who alone is to be treasured. If our evangelism is, is contingent upon us looking really good, we're sunk. But if our evangelism and therefore our discipleship after evangelism is contingent upon taking people to the one true, good, faithful, upside-down, confounding, faithful God, if that's what our evangelism and our discipleship is based upon, we've got something to say. So we all have to grow, all of us. But we're all here to help other people grow too. So wherever you find yourself today, There's opportunity for repentance today. To be honest about what's inside that is yet dark. To let the light of God's Word wielded by His Spirit to expose. And then He might replace that with with faith-filled worship. And as you grow in this, I call you to fulfill Jesus' commands to go help other disciples learn these same things, whether they are disciples yet or not. So, brothers and sisters, may we grow and change for the glory of God, and may we collectively partner with others that they might as well. This text exposes to us gospel truth, that God's grace is upside down, and therefore we can trust Him, and we can help others do the same. Let's pray. Our Father, Your grace is surprising That's what grace is. It's not like anything that we know. In your kind love for us, we know you often put us in circumstances to expose the things that you don't like, the things that are choking out our affections for you. Lord, you're tender and you're faithful. And and as as you do this in us, we pray that you'd be gentle. It hurts really bad a lot of the time. So we we want the darkness exposed. We we want the faithlessness to be exposed, but we ask that you'll do it gently. But keep doing it because we believe that what you have to offer us is better. As we find ourselves in these circumstances, help us to see them for what they are. Help us to look to you, the one who spared nothing from us, who gave us all that we needed and way more, Help us to look to the Scriptures which proclaim to us that you've always been faithful to your people. Help us to remember our own stories, to remember that you've always been faithful to us. Whether we fear for money or food or our jobs or our safety, your Word and our own experiences tell us that you'll never forsake us. So teach us to trust you. And then as we grow in this confidence, help us to help others as well. Moses struggled, but he believed, and he led. We struggle, but we're learning to believe and to lead other people. So change us, your children, and use us for your glory to help those around us, we pray. Do this for the glory of Jesus, and do this for the joy of your people. Amen.